I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A failed career and a spouse's jealousy leads to a tragic event that would leave many wondering whether danger signs were ignored. This is the Bryn Hartman story. Hi, Amy. It's finally April, and we are getting close to the end of the semester already. I cannot believe it. The school year always flies. You think it's going to take forever. And I always, I kind of want it to go fast, but then when I get to the end, I'm like, why did I hope it would go fast? This only means I'm going to be another year older in June, so (laughs) try not to speed it up too much. Yes, that's true. But we get so many months to just focus on women and crime and some of our research, which is always awesome. Yes, we're lucky that we have time in the summer to like pursue so many new research projects and other things that I really look forward to. So today we're going to be discussing Bryn Hartman. And Megan, I know you know that name, right? You said your mother was a big fan of Phil Hartman? Yes, I knew the story and I know a little bit about Bryn Hartman's background professionally as well. I was surprised because I'd only heard of her husband, Phil Hartman, who was very famous in the late 80s or actually in the 80s and the 90s for his work on Saturday Night Live and other areas, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I never knew anything about Bryn and I never really knew the story of what happened here. So this one is definitely shocking because other than being high profile, it has a lot to do with substance abuse and you know, where the line is between personal responsibility and how substances can influence a person's decision. Did you hear about this one from a listener or suggestion or did you just come across this on your own? 
I think if I asked you to guess, you probably could figure it out, Megan. I'm reading the Phil Hartman biography. Biography. Yeah, a memoir. <laughs> I should have definitely let out with that. Okay. Yes. So it is not a memoir because a memoir would be written by Phil himself. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite pastimes is just kind of looking at the memoirs and the biographies at the library. And I came across the Phil Hartman biography called You Might Remember Me, mm. written by Mike Thomas. Now, I haven't finished it yet, okay. but I did plenty of other research. So I'm reading this on the side. And then I realized it was relevant to what we do here on the podcast. So I figured we would cover the story. That's great. It's nice when you find your inspiration from like books that just interest you in general. Yeah, I wasn't even looking for a topic. You know, we have we have a very long list of cases to cover. Yes, we do. So let's unpack Bryn Hartman's story. Now, Bryn was born on April 11th, 1958, and her legal name was Vicki Jo Omdahl. She grew up in Thief River Falls, Minnesota with her family. Her father was an engineer and her mother was a local retail shop owner. She had one brother and two sisters and by all accounts had what most people would consider to be a typical or normal upbringing. But Brent always seemed to be on a quest to find herself. Now, a friend of hers described her as always changing her name. So first she was Vicky, then she was Vicky Joe, then she was Brynden, and then Bryn. In fact, a friend often poked fun at her asking, so who are you this week? And I'm sure, you know, we all know people like that who are always on a quest to kind of figure out who they are. Bryn dropped out of high school to pursue her dream of becoming a model. And she did garner a small amount of success in Minnesota. And while modeling, she started dating a local man by the name of Douglas Ivor Torfin. The couple would marry on May 20th, 1977. However, the marriage was short-lived. Bryn just didn't want to get stuck in Minnesota. You know, she had big dreams. She wanted to be a famous model. And the two would divorce, and she relocated to California. And this is when she officially would change her name to Bryn. She didn't have as much success as she had hoped for. I mean, she did secure a few commercial spots, a few TV spots upon moving. But, you know, she was a little disappointed. And, you know, she wanted things to move quicker than they were. And I would imagine there's a lot of people that move to California hoping to achieve these big dreams. And it just doesn't happen overnight. Right. Or it might not happen at all. It's really hard. Yeah. And perhaps as a result of this strain, or maybe just from hanging around a certain crowd, she started drinking heavily and also using cocaine. And unfortunately, she would become addicted to both substances. Luckily, she had family and family noticed what was going on. And at the urging of her brother, she entered a rehab program and she got clean. She was able to get off the substances at this point. Oh, good. And being sober was going pretty well for her. She got a job as a swimsuit model. And while she was riding the high of her new job, she met a man, an aspiring actor by the name of Philip Edward Hartman. Now, sources are a bit at odds regarding how they met. Some sources say they were set up on a blind date. Others say they met at a party. But regardless of how they met, the two began dating in 1986. So just a bit on Phil's background. Phil had been born in Canada in 1948, and his family had moved to Los Angeles in 1960. Megan, I don't know if you knew this, but he was the fourth of eight siblings. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he came from a devout Catholic family. Phil was involved in drama from a young age, and he stood out among his peers. He was extremely funny, and everyone regarded him as the class clown, and he was also very likable. He attended Santa Monica College and Cal State Northridge, where he majored in graphic design. He then worked for a bit as a stage manager for a band, and he was also a graphic designer. Now, he was very talented artistically in many different areas. In 1975, Phil went to see a show at The Growlings, which is an improv Los Angeles comedy group. Do you know some famous people who got their start there? 
I don't. Well, you know, I am quite the fangirl of Dak Shepard. Oh, boy. And Dak, Dak's got his beginnings at the Growlings. And he was in a comedy group with Melissa McCarthy. Oh, wow. Okay. You also had Will Ferrell start there, Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, Lisa Kudrow. I'm not done, Megan. John Lovitz, Conan O'Brien, Paul Rubens, Jennifer Coolidge, Chris Kattan, Jimmy Fallon, Will Forte. The list goes on, Megan. Wow, that's a list. Right? Yes. So I digress a little bit. But basically what happened is Phil was at a friend's party and they were at this comedy club and they were waiting for, you know, the act to go on. And Phil was very good at impressions. And he kind of jumped on stage and just started like, you know, having fun at the mic. And people thought he was absolutely hilarious. And it was after that, I guess you could say performance, that he was approached and asked to join the group. Wow, that's like improv. Yeah, so he joined the cast, and that would be the beginning of a, a very successful career for him. Mm-hmm. He met a few good friends there, including John Lovitz and Paul Rubens, who would go on to become Pee Wee Herman. In fact, Phil Hartman helped create the Pee Wee Herman character with Paul, and he also co-wrote the screenplay to the first movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Oh, wow. Sorry, Megan. While we're at fun facts, can I just say one more? Okay. In 1979, Phil Hartman was on the dating game as a contestant. Oh, get out. Do you remember the dating game? So I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole, and it turns out he was not the only famous person who was a contestant on that show before they became famous. Who, who else was? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Selleck, Farrah Fawcett, John Ritter, Sally Field. I mean, I just found too much fun. I knew you would love this. I know you love trivia, so... I do. Is that like a starting place for comedians, the dating game or the dating show? I mean, that's so interesting. I don't know. It might be like a place for them to get seen. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I guess if you're someone living in California and, you know, you're kind of doing what you can to get in front of the camera. But yeah. I was shocked. Even Suzanne Summers was another one that I saw. Oh. So if you all want to be entertained, go check out some of these people on the dating game. It was very fun to watch, you know, oh, the 70s, 80s. The humor is very different, very inappropriate. <laughs> of course. Okay, so back to Phil. So his career really took off when he joined the cast of Saturday Night Live in 1986. So he left the Growlings to pursue this new position. And this was right after he began his relationship with Bryn. So Phil would become very famous for his hilarious impersonations. Have you seen Phil Hartman on SNL? Oh, definitely. I don't want to spend too much time, but there's just one or two that I recall. Do you recall when he impersonated Bill Clinton and went into the McDonald's? Oh, I certainly do. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so good. It's comedy gold. It's such a different type of comedy than we see now. He was a master. He was an absolute was. master of impersonations. Okay, so needless to say, I mean, people loved him. He he would do Ed McMahon. He would do Ronald Reagan, Jack Nicholson. He was so incredible at these impersonations. After he moved to New York to pursue this career, Bryn followed soon after, and she left California to move to New York to be with him. Okay. His success continued. He even won a shared Emmy Award for his writing contributions. At the time, Megan, he set the record for the most appearances as one of the show's regulars. It was somewhere over 150 appearances. Right. So Phil was both, he was a performer and a writer for the show, which was very rare for the time. So Bryn follows Phil, it seems, after maybe not such a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, many people questioned, you know, so what made Phil fall for Bryn? He definitely had no problems getting the ladies. He was a very funny guy. He was well-regarded. He had a great personality. 
And really, a man of his caliber, he really could he could have gotten any woman he wanted at that time. You know, Bryn was a swimsuit model, but she wasn't very high profile. Many of Phil's friends had suggested that when the two met, Phil was in a particularly vulnerable state because he was just coming out of his second failed marriage. So he hadn't yet got the gig with SNL. So he was in a little bit of a professional limbo when he met Bryn. And so coming out of his divorce, kind of not knowing where he's going professionally, Bryn was tall, blonde, beautiful, and his friends felt that he was attracted to her because she was able to bolster his ego after this divorce. Oh, that seems kind of harsh. Like they're suggesting that he would not have been interested in Bryn if he had not been in this kind of place. I don't know. I mean, it just seems a little harsh. Yeah, it sounds insulting, right? Yeah, yeah it agree. does. It does. Bryn was also very taken by Phil and the affection that he showed her. He reportedly doted on her and they had a very intense relationship. But unfortunately, intense passion also meant very intense emotional fights. Right. Their relationship was rocky pretty much from the start. But as we see in many couples, they often reconciled and they would get back together after having explosive fights. Soon after moving to New York, Bryn became pregnant with their first child. The two also got married around this time in a small ceremony. Now, some say that the couple probably would not have gotten married so soon. Maybe not at all, if not for the pregnancy. But, you know, Phil was a little reluctant to get married because he had had the two failed marriages. I mentioned the one he was just coming out of. He had been married from 1982 to 1985. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, he was also married from 1970 to 1972. Okay. So... I would imagine that he maybe wanted to take things a little slower, considering that maybe he felt he jumped into the other relationships too fast. Sorry, I don't know this either. Or did you say this? Is there an age gap between them? Phil is about nine years older than Bryn. That's what I thought. Okay. Now, many of Phil's friends would say that they advised him against marrying Bryn because the relationship was so volatile. Mm -hmm. Of course, he did not listen. As I said, the two got married. This was in 1987. And now after this, Phil's career really took off. He was not only a regular on SNL. Do you know where he did voice work? No. I didn't know this either, but Phil Hartman did regular voice work on The Simpsons from 1990 to 1994. Were you a Simpsons watcher? Absolutely not. I don't like those kinds of cartoons. Oh, okay. I'm not a fan of them, so. Um, those of you who are a fan of the show probably know that he did play a few various characters over the years. Phil was also a frequent guest on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and many other late night shows. Right. Okay, so what about Bryn? Now, Bryn had moved to California to become a famous model, right? She found a little bit of success in California, but she left her modeling job to follow Phil to New York City. And then she ended up being a homemaker after their son was born. So as a result, likely of what was happening in her own career, she began resenting Phil's enormous success. She was also upset that he was spending so much time at work and leaving her alone in an apartment to take care of their child by herself. Regardless of some of these issues, the couple had a second child and welcomed a baby girl a short time later. Mm. And despite the tumultuous nature of their relationship, they both loved their children and loved being parents, and they were described as very loving parents to their two children. However, the family dynamic destabilized as Bryn's jealousy increased with Phil's flourishing career. She just despised that he'd become famous, and she had not. She was consistently angry at Phil for not spending more time with her and the kids, and this got to the point where some sources say that she got verbally and physically abusive with Phil. But this is not entirely substantiated as far mm -hmm. as, you know, the physical nature of their relationship. But many people that worked at SNL 
did vouch for the fact that she would often have, you know, explosive fights with him. Right. She would constantly start arguments a lot of times right before he would go on, almost like purposely trying to derail him. And as many would do, Phil began to retreat. And in general, Phil was described as someone who hated conflict. So he'd often disengage, which likely made Bryn more angry. So we have this tumultuous home life. We have Bryn's jealousy, but Phil's career, it was going steadily upward. In 1994, after eight seasons of SNL, Phil left the show to sign on to an NBC sitcom called News Radio. You ever watch that? Oh, it sounds so familiar. It really does. I'm sure I did, and I just can't recall. Yeah, Megan, I never watched News Radio, but it had quite the all-star cast. I even heard that. Another fun fact for you, Megan, Joe Rogan was on that show. I do remember it, and I remember Andy Dick was on the show, too. Yep, exactly. Now, the show was very successful, and it also meant that the family could relocate back to California because that's where the show was shot. So Phil and Bryn both were excited about this move because they felt that California was more home to them than New York City was. Now, with this continued success, you know, Phil bought cars and boats and airplanes, uh, you know, not big airplanes, small, you know, private airplanes. Uh, he spent a lot of time away from his family in Catalina Island. And again, Bryn was very upset by this, and she wanted Phil to spend more time with the family. Was Bryn working on her own career again at that time? Yeah, actually, she was trying, and Phil did try to use his influence to help Bryn get her career off the ground. Okay. She had a few small parts. Did you ever hear of the movie North? It came out in 1994. No. She had a small part in that movie, and she was also in a few episodes of Third Rock from the Sun around 1996. Oh, yeah, okay. Unfortunately, these were short-lived, and Bryn had difficulty getting new gigs. Mm -hmm. Bryn was reportedly suffering from low self-esteem. Now, she was about to turn 40 and was struggling with the fact that she was aging, and she was was very conscious of the way that she looked. You and I are northward of 40 and we understand that struggle, right? You know, honestly, in her at the time too, in Hollywood standards as well, if you're looking to model, if you're looking to act, there's just so much pressure on women as they age and the types of roles that they can get. And mm -hmm. yes, I think we're both <laughs> conscious that we're getting a little bit older, but I think that it's especially a lot of pressure on women in that industry. And, you know, we have at least made some progress in that area. But at that time, I can imagine it was quite difficult, quite a strain on her. Yes. And as is often the case from the outside, she was very beautiful. Oh, yes. If you see pictures of her. But unfortunately, it doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside. She was struggling. Yeah. Um, you know, she would get a little bit of work done. And, you know, Phil was supportive, although he definitely did not pressure her to get any of the work done. She definitely felt it for herself. Yeah. It was around this time that Bryn started using cocaine and drinking heavily again. Mm. And this probably did not help her quest to get more acting work and probably not to, you know, get her family back on track either. The marriage grew more contentious and there were threats of divorce. And we're talking about threats from both sides. Mm -hmm. Reportedly, Phil would threaten to leave her if she didn't get clean and, you know, she would make threats. But, you know, the couple stayed together. Some people say for the kids. Some say for financial, but of course, we could never know. Right. Bryn did try to get clean. She did have a few stints in rehab, but her addiction to cocaine and alcohol had a hold on her, and she always went back to using. In early 1998, she also began taking Zoloft, which is an antidepressant, but it could also be used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, various panic disorders, and various anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. Now, when mixed with other substances, medications like Zoloft have the potential to trigger violent outbursts. 
And in Bryn's case, it often did. And while she's always been prone to this kind of angry behavior, things seemed to get worse after she started taking the Zoloft. Many would say Bryn was out of control and Phil's disengagement no longer seemed to be working. Her violent episodes were often aimed at Phil, but nobody ever thought that Bryn would reach a breaking point. The exact details of what happened the night of May 27, 1998, and into the early morning hours of May 28, 1998, it's still a mystery 25 years later, but I'm going to report on what is known, and I'll let you know where there's some uncertainties. On May 27, 1998, Bryn went out with a friend, and this was normal for her. She'd go out with a friend. They have a nanny that would watch the children, and then Phil would be coming home from work to relieve the nanny. While out, she had several drinks, and she was reportedly in a happy, normal state. And although some reports say that she spent the evening complaining about her marriage, it wasn't necessarily out of the norm for her. After having drinks with her friend, she went to another friend's home, a man by the name of Ron Douglas. The two had had a prior relationship, but they were platonic friends at this point. She drank a few beers with Ron and then complained about her marriage before heading home around 12.45 a.m. We don't know exactly what happened upon her arrival home, but some sources say that it is likely that Phil and Bryn got into an argument, likely about her use of alcohol and cocaine. Recall the two had fought constantly about her needing to get clean and to stop drinking and using cocaine, and Phil had simply had it with her substance use. Some sources say he likely threatened divorce on this night, that if she didn't get clean, he was going to end things. And then Phil went to bed. We were not there. We can't ever know what exactly happened, but this is what is speculated. Oh, okay. So while we don't know exactly what happened between the argument and around 1 a.m. and really what happens after that, we do know that Bryn was alone for an hour or two before she did the unthinkable. Sometime between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. on May 28th, Bryn removed a 38 Smith & Wesson from the metal lockbox in the closet. Both Bryn and Phil had a small gun collection that began when they had moved back to L.A. from New York City. So taking this gun, she stood over their bed and shot Phil between the eyes, in the throat, and in the chest, and he would die instantly. After murdering Phil, Bryn proceeded to drink for about another hour and also likely used cocaine during this time. While in this state, Bryn called her friend Ron, the friend she was with earlier in the night, and she was crying hysterically, saying that Phil had left for the evening and he had left a note simply saying that he'd be back later. Ron had consoled her and told her to try to get some sleep. Rather than taking his advice and going to sleep, Bryn showed up at his front door about 20 minutes later. He said that she smelled of alcohol, she was in hysterics, and she was barefoot. Once she came in the home, she collapsed on the living room floor. It was now about 3.45 a.m. Ron would say that he knew that she had been using and thought that maybe she had overdosed because she was also vomiting a lot. Bryn had asked him to call home, you know, because she was sick. Maybe she wanted her husband to know where she was or to know she was sick. So Bryn asked Ron to call home several times. I believe he did about three times and nobody answered. The phone just kept ringing. Then she would tell Ron that she killed her husband and he even saw a gun in her purse and he did take the gun from her. But he didn't believe her. I mean, why would he? As her friend, he knew Bryn could be dramatic and perhaps volatile, and he knew she was extremely intoxicated, but could he ever have imagined that she would have murdered Phil? Probably not. And their children were in the home at the time, correct? Bryn's children, six and nine at this time, were at home sleeping. Eventually, she sobered up enough to drive home, but insisted she'd only go if Ron followed her. So on the ride home, she spoke to another friend named Judy, 
and she confessed to Phil's murder to this friend as well. But unlike Ron, this friend took it seriously and quickly drove over to the Hartman house. Meanwhile, upon entering the home, Ron saw the grisly scene and called 911. So when Judy arrived, she and Ron and the police soon after, they focused on removing the children who, again, were sleeping at the time. And luckily, the children had slept through the horror, although the older boy would later say that he heard what sounded like a door being slammed over and over again. Mm. Other than that, the children did not, as far as I know, there's no other report about what the children heard or saw. Right. Meanwhile, as the police were at the home, Bryn locked herself in the bedroom and sat next to Phil's body. Around 6.30 a.m., she called her sister. I'm not sure exactly what this conversation entailed, but she did tell her sister, please make sure you tell my children I love them. As the cops began banging on the door, she hung up on her sister. She then laid next to Phil on the bed and shot herself in the head, dying immediately. Luckily, the children were out of the house by this time. They were taken into police custody and then later put in the care of family members. Bryn's autopsy and toxicology tests revealed that she had an alcohol level of 0.12%, along with traces of cocaine that had likely been ingested about five hours prior to her death. In her system was also the prescription drug Zoloft. It's unclear how much Zoloft was in her system. Remember, she was prescribed the drug, so I'm not sure if it was the prescribed amount or more, but that is what was found in her system. Okay. Now, of course, there's no trial in a case like this, which we would classify as a Mm murder-suicide. So Bryn and Phil's families were left reeling. How did this happen? And could anyone have stopped this from happening? Right. I mean, while no one could ever know for sure whether somebody is homicidal, there were several red flags to Bryn's behavior that began long before May of 1998. For example... After their daughter was born, Phil had called his ex-wife to tell her the happy news. The two had remained very close friends. Okay. After hearing the news, Lisa, who's the ex-wife, she sent the family a congratulations card on their child's birth. This made Bryn very angry and jealous, and she wrote a letter back to Lisa. The gist of it being, quote, don't ever effing get near me or my family or I will hurt you. I never want to hear from you. Never, ever, ever come near us or you will be really sorry. Wow, that's really concerning. I feel like I know the answer, but maybe not. Were the police called to the home at all? Not that I was able to find. Oh, okay. Because I thought they were. All right. That doesn't mean they weren't. Right. It just means in the sources I found they weren't. Okay. And if you remember back at the beginning of the relationship, several of Phil's friends had you know, urged him not to marry Bryn. And some even told him that they found Bryn to be unsettling due to her erratic behavior. There was even one of his closest friends who stopped talking to him for several years when he married Bryn. Oh, wow. Yeah, his friends felt strongly about this. You know, I don't know how much stock to put in this, but there's also the fact that Bryn changed her name several times over the course of her young adulthood. And while this isn't uncommon for people who are looking for fame, it does bring into question how much of Bryn's personal identity may have been unstable. Right. And then, of course, there were her addictions. Is it possible that they had chemically changed her to such a point that she would murder Phil? I mean, there's lots of questions here. A year after the murder-suicide, Bryn's brother filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Pfizer, the maker of Zoloft. And he was quoted as saying, The use of Zoloft caused my sister to not know what she was doing, and she shot her husband. And when she came out of that, she shot herself. Now, when the lawsuit was filed in 1999, Pfizer gave a statement, quote, There's no scientific or medical evidence that Zoloft causes violent or suicidal behavior. The suit was settled for $100,000 with no admission of any wrongdoing. I also have to imagine, and though I don't 
know specifically, but I would imagine there's a warning about interaction effects, like not to drink or use other illegal drugs because of the possible effects. Yeah. So in 2004, the FDA mandated that all antidepressants would include a warning regarding the risk of suicidal ideation. Ah. And this was particularly for, though, kids and teens. Okay. I don't know if you recall that there were a lot of cases that were questioning the relationship between antidepressants and suicidal ideation in younger people. There are varying levels of debate as to the relationship between antidepressants and suicidal ideation. What we do know is that doctors advise against mixing alcohol with antidepressants because both affect neurotransmitters in your brain and alcohol can also increase the side effects of these medications. Right. But then you have mixing cocaine and Zoloft. And this is more problematic because this can cause a rush of serotonin and dangerous levels of serotonin can cause, well, not only death, but they could cause delirium and other behaviors. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, Zoloft and Prozac, along with many other similar drugs, were being blamed for hundreds of violent deaths. And there was this claim that volatile behavior was an extreme manifestation of a rare side effect of the antidepressants. And it was said that this could drive a person into extreme states of irritability, anger, and frustration. Now, more recent research has noted that there may be a link between some antidepressants and self-harm or violent behavior but that this is seen more in children and younger patients under the age of 25. Mm -hmm. Every single case is different. And we see that there are many cases where the benefits of a medication outweighs this rare side effect. I would agree, but I just, I am aware of a growing body of literature that is addressing this issue. And it's something that I think people should be aware of when they consult with their doctor. Yeah, as with anything you're going to put in your body, you want to know what possible side effects are. Absolutely. You weigh the cost and the benefits and decide what's best for you. Yes. So I understand what uh, this tragedy, and I remember the tragedy, but I don't know what happened with their children. Bryn's sister, Kathy, and her husband raised both children in the Midwest, and I'm sure it was extremely difficult on these two. But by all accounts, they thrived, and they grew up in what would be considered a stable, happy home. I mean, they both keep a pretty low profile, mm -hmm. but they're both successful adults, and Phil's daughter was even at an SNL anniversary show to honor her dad. Oh, how nice. I think it's incredible that these two children were able to um, thrive after what happened. I mean, yeah, that's really hard. And of course, we don't know their personal struggles as well. Of course. Just what we see. But it's an absolute tragedy what happened. However, and I don't mean this to sound insensitive, but it might have been more stable home for them to grow up with her family because it sounded mm -hmm. like the home they were in was uh, unfortunately very tumultuous and unstable. So maybe they found some more grounding, I guess, following this yeah, tragedy. Maybe. Or at least I hope so. Okay, so what can we say about this case? There's some questions here. There's a few ways to look at this. Was Bryn a mentally unstable woman whose jealousy and loneliness ultimately led to this tragedy? or can we look to her substance abuse? I think we have to look to both. I think it's a combination, absolutely, of both of these issues coming together. And unfortunately, though there are red flags in these cases, they're not always these huge red flags where people wouldn't necessarily think to intervene. So it, it's really, it, it's the epitome of a tragedy. It is. And these tragedies, particularly speaking of murder-suicides, the majority of them involve intimate partners and occur in the home. So you have about, according to the Violence Policy Center, there's close to 600 murder-suicides yearly in the United States. 
And 65% of those involve intimate partners and 81% occur in the home. Wow. Research suggests three explanations that can help us understand domestic murder suicides. One of them would be situations where there are significant negative dynamics, such as abuse, infidelity, or perceived injustice. And I would say Bryn probably falls into this category because she was intensely jealous of Phil's success. Yes. She was barely able to break through into Hollywood. And it seemed that she perceived her place as homemaker to be an injustice to her while Phil worked late hours and he would use his well-earned money to go have fun and she felt like she was stuck at home with the kids. Right. Um, There were a few sources that reported that at times she may have thought Phil was having an affair, but there's never been any evidence suggesting that he was in fact having an affair. Tell me who you think falls in this category because we just had a conversation about this. Okay. Another class of murder-suicides falls under this explanation that a perpetrator's feeling of obligation toward the victim, such as protecting a spouse, partner, or child from the stigma or shame of the planned suicide or the hurtful consequences of something that the actor has done. Did we just talk about this? Who is it? We did. Yes. You you gave me a theory. We were talking about a case that's in the news and oh, someone this is, is on the Alex Murdoch case. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes. So as yes. I was writing this, I was like, oh, Megan just because we were talking about the explanation for is it possible? Yes. Did he do this? If he did, why? And there were different this, explanations suggested by the prosecutor. Uh-huh. And I said, well, there could be an alternative one. Yes, absolutely. And then the last would be when they're more of a mercy killing. And we've talked about cases like this where yes. somebody engages in a murder suicide as a way to relieve the victim of an ongoing suffering or indignity. Okay. Got it. It doesn't seem like Bryn was doing much to alleviate her own problems. You know, she was drinking and doing cocaine and she had an addiction problem. So I think it it got to a point where she couldn't control what she was doing. But of course, that probably fed into her inability to get a job. But then you have to wonder, on the other hand, she did seem to blame Phil for all of her inability to achieve her dreams. So I'm wondering if you could see her falling under... Victim complex, also called victim mentality, is a personality trait that we see used in clinical psychology. And it's used to describe a person who basically believes that they are constantly the victim of harmful acts of others, even when they are given evidence to the contrary. And this type of personality trait can cause extreme chaos in relationships, could lead to manipulation, bullying. This brings up the idea of, you know, where is the intersection of personal responsibility and substance abuse and mental health. Right. It says this is, you know, very complicated because she murdered him. And so there's, of course, people are would blame her for the murder. And that would be correct. Now, where this would have stood in a court of law, had she survived this, had she not died by suicide, then she would have been in a court of law. And I'm not sure what they would have found. You know, would they have found that she met maybe a standard of legal insanity? I'm not really sure. I know they don't recognize addiction so much in the courts in terms of insanity, please. However, it sounds like she had, you know, mental health issues combined with addiction. I know plenty of people who are addicts recovering sober. And, you know, many of them have told me that there's a level of responsibility one accepts when you pick up a drug or a drink again. But once you do, you can't stop. And that's part of the disease. So we have to recognize as well. Mm-hmm. She was a sick woman in ways. 
So I don't think it would be for me to judge. I think a court of law would have been different than maybe the court of public opinion. I agree. Regardless of it, you know whether or not this could have prevented, did people miss any signs? I mean, this is a tragedy all around. Right. I think this case highlights the importance of being aware of these issues and bringing awareness to domestic violence, addiction, mental health issues. I absolutely agree. The more we know about these areas, the more we can help people and prevent situations like this from occurring. And as always, if you're looking for any resources, you can check out the show notes and our website. Thank you all so much for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include IMDb, Daily News, LA Times, CNN, History.com, Biography, and ABC. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.